Great. Well, it's really good to be with you. It's uh, really nice to see a lot of those happy, smiling faces out there. Um, And if you're not happy and smiling, please become that right now, uh, because that makes it a lot nicer to be stood here. Um, I don't know about you, but I've been thoroughly enjoying the sun today. Hannah's had the misfortune to be at work uh, with all this going on, and I thought I'd really like to get a few little jobs done around the house by the time she comes home. Um, So I got out of bed about 10, um, went to the allotment and planted my potatoes, potted up some aubergines and some uh, squashes and all sorts of things, and then didn't have time to do any housework. And she will probably get home just before I do. Um, And I'm really hoping that she gets called out to work before I then get home. Uh, Because then I can do the jobs, and then she can come back to a nice, tidy house. There is that as well. So uh, we'll see what happens. Um, But yeah, like I say, it's great to be with you, and it's great to be able to have kind of sat at the back and worship Jesus together with you. Um, We're currently in our series talking about Easter, looking at hope, and today we're looking at hope in the face of death. Um, So... We'll just start off by being a little bit morbid. So all those happy, smiling faces of yours, let's see if we can retain that whilst being morbid. Um, and I'm kind of, you know, I've kind of worked a bit at this this week and struggled a bit with what we're, what we're looking at. But, but let's be honest. You are going to die. And I'm not threatening you. I'm going to die too. Maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow. No, but maybe. At some point, we will all die. Well, what are you going to do about it? I think that's a great question. You know, what are you going to do about that fact? You know, we sometimes do what we can, don't we, to, to try and future-proof uh, our lives somewhat. People invest money and time into things that will last, uh, hopefully, a good amount of time. Uh, people pay into pension funds all their work in life to pay for them and provide for them in their retirement. You can take out life insurance policies that will hopefully pay, you know, well, hopefully pay off for your loved ones. People have children, don't they, to look after them in their old age. Now, it's not necessarily the only reason people have children, but it definitely is a good one. Um, you know, some people try to exercise and eat healthily to stave off death a few more years. You know, we try to buy things that are up to date and that won't break to, to see us through the kind of next few minutes of... Uh, technological advancement well kind of on that my, um, my dad sent me an email this last week and he's it, just kind of thought that is so appropriate for what we're looking at today he sent me an email he, he often does that because he would rather do that than talk to me um, on the phone and uh, some may think that's sensible but it, his email was entitled a new computer and sad news so from that you can probably guess what part of the news was he bought himself the new computer that he was telling me about um, a few weeks ago. Because Windows XP, something I'm not that familiar with, um, is no longer going to be supported by Microsoft. So he thought to kind of future-proof himself, he should get a new computer with something newer on it, uh, so he won't have the problem of viruses and all those sorts of things. So that was half the news. That was his new computer bit of news. Uh, The sad news that he wanted to tell me was that one of his old teaching colleagues had died Occasionally when we were little, there were a couple of people that my brother and I used to be dragged to the house of because, you know, they were a bit older, they didn't have any family nearby. It was nice for them to kind of have some human contact with people. Otherwise, they, you know, they wouldn't get that much. And this, this woman was one of them. Uh, the other one was called Auntie Dorothy. She was no relation whatsoever. 
Um, but we used to go around to see this woman called Kate, uh, go to her house and see her. And she had a really nice house. Um, she also had a, a bungalow at Hummonby. If you know where Hummonby is, it's near Filey on the coast. And we visited that once or twice. Her plan for retirement was to kind of move out to the coast, walk the coastal path, breathe the sea air, do some bird watching. Now, it sounds quite nice. However, the truth is, this last week, she died. All the good that it's done, she probably really enjoyed her time out there. But nothing could stop the inevitability of her dying. There's a, a really famous phrase, isn't there? There's nothing kind of as certain but death and taxes. And you know, when you get your pay slip at the end of the month, you say, oh, that's an all right number. Oh, that's a shame. Um, because, you know, the government has taken away that chunk of money that you think, oh, I've worked so hard for that, and now you've taken it. Um, and that was apparently written in 1726 by a chap called Daniel Defoe, who I'm guessing paid taxes and died because he's no longer with us. So, and I guess for many people, there's nothing more certain than death and taxes. But I don't really think that they're the only certainties that we, we have in life. That death and taxes aren't our only certainties. I think that for all people, whether they like it or not, and whether they believe it or not, there is the certainty of God the Father, Jesus' Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's the unchanging word, the Bible, which we've read from. Uh, there are all the promises of God that we can trust and rely on. And there is a certainty, the Bible tells us, of one day Jesus coming again. Jesus said in his time on earth that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father but by him. Now, if he is the truth, I was thinking about that, if Jesus is the truth, he is the kind of yardstick of truth, isn't he? All truth is measured against Jesus, if that claim is true. But death is something that we won't escape unless Jesus returns within our lifetime. Death is something that in some way we either have or will all experience. Whether it's been the death of a friend, a family member, a work colleague, maybe even for some people that we know, uh, they've been involved in the death of other people, maybe in a war or something like that. But I think death is something that is so final and it's so hard for us to deal with because it feels really unnatural. Death jars with us because we're made by an eternal God for an eternal relationship with him and somehow we kind of feel that, that death messes that up for a bit. I don't know if you've been following the news much this week, but there is um, a great, great picture on the front of one of the papers during the week of Prince George, about eight months old, and I, I didn't know this at the time when I was writing this. So he's about eight months old and he's been crawling around with other children. But apparently he has done his first public wave. Uh, uh, which is brilliant, because that's like 90% of his job for his life. Um, so he's sorted, that lad. But he's been crawling around with lots of other children. There's a lot of promise and hope in that young lad. He's going to be our future king. And he's all very cute and diplomatic, I imagine. Uh, I've not met him, just to let you know that. But at the same time, on the same front page, there was a picture of Peaches Geldof, who died at 25. There's so much potential in that young girl's life, but what a waste. At some point, death will come to us all. You know, we don't know when it's going to be. It could be, you know, today, or it could be 50 years from now. Um, but is there really any hope in the face of the certainty of death? As we're going to look at Luke's account of the crucifixion of Jesus, we'll see what he has to tell us about facing death with hope. Not a kind of wishful thinking of, you know, one day I'll become an angel in heaven or a star in the night sky, 
um, or something a little bit meaningless or namby-pamby like that, but a hope that is based on a certainty. So let's pray, and then let's read a little bit of that passage again. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that we can rejoice in knowing that you have given us uh, a true word. Father, we thank you for Jesus, who is the word made flesh. Father, we thank you that by your spirit you can uh, make this true to our hearts and to our lives. Father, we thank you that by your spirit you have written this down and you've kept it safe and you've brought it to us in our own language. Father, we ask that today as we look at the death of Jesus, that you would help us each understand what it means um, for us. Father, help us to, to know today hope in the face of death because of what Jesus has done. Amen. Okay, so just before we deal with the crucifixion, uh, we need to just see something of the birth of death. Where does death come from itself? So if you've got a um, Bible in your hands and you want to quickly turn with me to Genesis chapter 2 and 3, we're just going to read a couple of verses from there and then we'll carry on. So Genesis 2, 15 to 17 says, The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to care Uh, to take care of it and the Lord God commanded the man you are free to eat from any tree in the garden but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil when you eat from it you will certainly die and then if you uh, cast your eyes across to chapter 3 verses 17 to 19 God says to Adam uh, to Adam he said because you listened to your wife and ate from uh, fruit from the tree about which I commanded you you must not eat from it Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat uh, the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. I've definitely known something of a toil in the ground this morning, planting my potatoes, and all the way through I was thinking, Adam... If only I hadn't done that. And then scratched by the thorns as well on the, the blackberries from next door. You know, I blame him. So this is the account that the Bible gives us of the birth of death. God's design is one of perfect physical life that lasts forever. Perfect relationship between humans and God, between humans and humans, and between humans and the physical world. God's out a plan for life uh, for Adam in the Garden of Eden giving him everything he needed and one rule to live by. That was, don't eat from that tree. And we know that he did, and God punished him like he said he would. He didn't die physically immediately, but spiritually he died to God immediately. His once perfect relationship with God was broken, and he ran to hide from him. His relationship with his wife Eve was broken as he kind of pointed the finger and blamed her. Uh, And his body was then set on a course of kind of wearing out and struggling like ours do, leading ultimately to the destination of death in the end. God didn't desire death for Adam. He brought it on himself when he decided that he knew best. As he ate uh, the fruit in the garden, he rejected God's good rule on his life and decided to make himself the God of his own life. Because of this act in the garden, uh, God judges the man guilty, God sentences man to death, And God cast him out of the garden to work where the ground is hard. 
Death came when the first man said no to God. Death is the just result of rejecting God. So if you've got Luke 23 open, let's just read from verses 26 to 31 again and see what happens to Jesus. As they led him away, they seized Simon of Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country. They put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? So Jesus was sentenced to crucifixion. Uh, but the process was one of, not just of kind of killing somebody, but also of trying to bring intense shame on the guilty party as well. Crucifixion, the type that Jesus went through, uh, was probably the most barbaric form of punishment that a person could have gone through that, left, that literally left them kind of hung out to die at the end. After Jesus' trial, uh, he was subject to a terrible physical beating, and whipping and mocking by the soldiers. The aim of the Roman soldiers was to kind of whip them until they were just on the edge of death. It's like, if you imagine somebody being pushed to the edge of a cliff, you know, so that one tiny little poke would leave them plummeting to their death. Their, their aim was to whip them to just the edge of death and stop. The hope was that one more lash of the whip would kill them. Some people even died during the, the whipping process because of its brutality. So Jesus was whipped, beaten, bleeding and broken. And at that point, he's given the crossbar to carry to his place of execution. You know, a huge piece of wood that would have been his tool of execution was placed on him to carry. He's kind of beating up to that point, his overnight trial, not having any food or water, had left him weak and half dead already. That he couldn't even hold up under the weight of the cross that he'd been given. Because Israel was an occupied nation by the Romans, um, a Roman soldier could apparently come up to you and he could tap you on the shoulder with the flat of his spear and that meant, I've got a job for you and you're going to do it, basically. So, that's what happens to Simon of Cyrene. A Roman soldier taps him on the shoulder and says, you carry that cross behind him. Um, And just a little aside here, I think it's quite funny that Luke gives us this guy's name it, it almost doesn't really matter to us who it is. Somebody else just carries his cross because Jesus is beaten up. But I think he gives us Simon's name because he crops up. You know, his family kind of crop up a bit further on in the Bible. He's probably a Jewish guy in Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. Um, and he just gets mixed up in the, the death of Jesus. As the crowd kind of gather around to see what's going on, he probably just gets picked up uh, by the Romans. It seems just by chance. But if you kind of go through the rest of the Bible, you'll find that he's got two sons called Alexander and Rufus, uh, and they crop up in Mark's Gospel. And then also there's a letter written to them in the church in Rome, and Rufus is named. It seems that this Jewish man who's in Jerusalem for the Passover gets a bit more than he bargained for. He meets Jesus in his dying moments, but his life at some point is drastically reordered around this dying man. In this passage as well, something really strikes me, and it's Jesus' ability 
to think about others even when you think he's got enough on his plate. At this point, Jesus is beaten, he's bleeding and he's broken. He can't even carry his own cross. And he addressed the crowd of wailing women. He says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, blessed are the childless women, wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. How many of us, when we're really struggling, will use that struggling as an excuse for our own poor behaviour and kind of justify it rather than even in that situation thinking of others? Sometimes we like to, to justify our own selfishness because kind of things are hard for me. We almost say, you know, you don't, you don't get my suffering so you have to put up with me how I am. Sometimes we act like that even if we don't say it. Uh, If we're trying to become more like Jesus in our lives, trying to live out God-centred lives, how we act all the time will reflect our relationship with him. In our joy, we can bring God glory or we can glory in something else. But if we seek to bring God glory when we're suffering, we have to realise that Jesus is bigger than our suffering. When we wallow in self-pity, we're in effect trying to say to the people around us, make me the centre of your world, rather than even in our struggles saying, Jesus is the centre of my world. Jesus wants these women to get a good perspective on what's going on. Uh, They're seeing a man betrayed and suffering injustice and now physical agony, um, and they're weeping for him. But Jesus is seeing something different. You know, those things, they are true. He is suffering, he is in physical agony. He has suffered injustice. But that's not what Jesus wants the women to know. Uh, The women are weeping, but they don't know what's going to come upon Jerusalem. There's going to be a great time of judgment that will fall on Jerusalem by the Romans. Uh, At that point, they'll wish that they never had children because they 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 had nothing to feed them. They're apparently historical reports of people even eating their children because there was no food when the Romans tried to kind of starve the Jews out but also Jesus sees past just that uh, physical present suffering by the Romans and he sees to a greater time of judgement when the Bible says that God will one day judge the world judge the whole world the Bible talks of that uh, and that points to a time when people are brought face to face with God the judge of the world and they won't want to face him and they would much rather have all the mountains and all the hills fall on them and cover them up and stand face to face with God and his wrath against their sin. You know, as Jesus says these words, he's not only thinking of them above himself, but also he's on the way to the cross to do something about it. So crucifixion was not only physical and mental torture, but like I said, its aim was to bring shame on you, your family and kind of anyone who knew you. It was used as a deterrent for anyone who thought about doing the same crime. They would go, hang on a minute, look what happened to the last guy that did this. So people knew what you'd done. As you were walking with your cross to your place of execution, four Roman soldiers would stand, uh, like two in front and two behind, and one would stand in front of them holding a sign that said, you know, this is the crime of this person. Whatever it was, it could say... You know, murder or theft or whatever it was they would walk that in front of them as they marched to their place of execution 
and once they crucified them, they would hang that sign above them. Okay, let's read on the next few verses, verses 32 to 38. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the King of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the King of the Jews. That sign that said, this is the king of the Jews, that would have been the one that was marched in front of Jesus as he walked to his place of execution. There's four words that Luke gives us in his account. He doesn't really give us a lot of detail. He just says, there... Sorry, they crucified him there. We hear that he's led out with at least two other men, two criminals, uh, both found guilty of their crime. They both admit to their guilt on the cross. There's no doubt in their minds that they are guilty. Jesus is being placed between these two robbers to try and bring even more shame on him. So not only is he claiming to be the son of God, but he also kind of is in effect guilty by association by knowing the people either side of him. When they crucified him, they would have stripped him naked to increase his shame. They would have driven a nail through each of his wrists um, because apparently hands weren't strong enough to hold you up. They might have put a nail through his feet or they might have just tied them onto the cross above a little peg that he could rest his feet on. And they would have raised him up to the correct position, hanging him only a few feet from the ground, uh, naked and nailed to a cross. He had already been whipped and beaten and he had a robber at each side and a sign above his head uh, that said he was the king of the Jews. So the question that I want to ask at that point is, what was Jesus doing when all that is going on? Is he shouting and screaming in agony? Is he swearing and cursing at the soldiers who are doing it to him? Is he angry and shouting at God? Is he saying, kind of, stuff this and calling the angels to his rescue? He's not doing any of that. Jesus' response is to pray for the soldiers. He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. This is, again, this wouldn't be me. You know, somebody was doing that to me, I would not be praying for them, for God to forgive them. I would be, you know, praying that, you know, God would smite them immediately or, you know, whatever. I'm just going through all sorts of horrible thoughts about these people. But as these people do this to Jesus, his thoughts are, God, just forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Yet Jesus thought for his people that he loves, those people who are executing him, those ones who are mocking him, Jesus' heart for these people is that God the Father would forgive them. Can you see the contrast in the hearts of the soldiers to the heart of Jesus? He longs that they would experience the forgiveness of God. And they've set up a man to die and they're straight on to deciding who's going to get what in his belongings. Apparently a Jewish man would wear like five different like, bits of clothing. Uh, so the four soldiers, they'd get one piece each and they'd cast lots for the last one. And that's what they want. Jesus is praying for them 
And they're thinking, who's having the T-shirt? Who's having the trousers? No, they just don't seem to care. So he's up on the cross, and the rulers and the soldiers start to mock him. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. (coughs) The irony of the story here is that the rulers think that they've won and defeated Jesus. As they taunt him on the cross and they mock him, they question his power. The last thing that they really want is for him to come down from the cross. Why? Because Jesus' mission is to go to the cross and take on death itself and defeat it. If Jesus comes down from the cross at that point, there's no hope for anyone. Apparently there used to be a group of women who would gather um, around victims of crucifixion. They would just be on a kind of a main road out of the city so that you would walk past them and see them. And they would they'd get the sour wine. Uh, they'd kind of drug it with a sedative or kind of anaesthetic and try and offer it to the people on the cross to relieve their suffering. But Jesus refuses it. Jesus is experiencing the real pain and torture of the cross in the raw, nothing to take the edge off. Then from verse 39, it says, One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. feels once again a truly remarkable conversation that Jesus has on the cross. There are three guys on death row and this is, you know, this is the conversation they have. The first one goes, I thought you were meant to be something special and you're not. You know, if you were, if you really were something special, you'd do something about this and you'd save us. The first robber kind of just sees the here and now and he sees the here and now coming to a very soon end. He wants Jesus basically to do him a favour and that's all. He has no clue about anything else. And then the second one kind of jumps in before Jesus answers for himself. Are you just so stupid? He's innocent. We're guilty. We're suffering the same punishment. And he turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me. Now this robber is a lawbreaker. You know, he's probably ruined some families. He says to Jesus at the 11th hour, help me. Jesus could have just turned to them both and said, look at your state. The government says you're guilty. I'm not helping you. There are two men, one on each side, both guilty of the same crime. One mocks him, the other asks for help. Even in that state, uh, sorry, even in the state that he was in, Jesus, because of his great love for people, says to the robber, today, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus' love for people was never and still isn't based on how good you are. This man was sentenced to death for a, for a crime and Jesus forgave him. Why? Because of his belief in Jesus. That he was the man who could have done something about his awful state. Not the state of him being crucified 
and facing death almost immediately, but the state that awaited him beyond his death of him dying and not being right with God. So let me just ask you, where is your heart right now? For these two criminals, death was right in their face. If death was right in your face right now, where would you go for help? The only safe place is Jesus. Truthfully, death could come at any time. I'd urge you to trust in Jesus today and not wait. So let's read the last bit of the passage. It was now about, about the sixth hour and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance, watching these things. What Jesus is doing as he goes to the cross is he's bearing the punishment for our sin. Our rebellion against God, our rejection of God, when he's beaten and crucified, he experiences the real physical pain and suffering of hell in all the depth of its agony but the real pain for Jesus is as the sky goes dark and he's no longer so much bearing the physical pain of hell but the tortured soul of a man being separated from the love and kindness of God this is something that's totally brand new for Jesus so remember that Jesus is God he's been there before the creation of the world that God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Spirit have never been separated And that happens at this point on the cross. Jesus is forsaken by God. He feels none of the Father's love and compassion and his gentleness that he's experienced forever, you know, for all time. But all he gets is the Father's wrath and anger and hatred towards sin. Jesus is experiencing the multifaceted torture that sin brings to all those people who reject God. There is good news, though. As the sun came up, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. This curtain hung between kind of two rooms, hung between the Holy of Holies, the place where kind of God lived among his people, and the rest of the people. This curtain represented the barrier that, that sin put up in the first place. As Adam rejected God, God raised up a barrier that only one person could have crossed. And then only once a year, only with a blood sacrifice of an animal. We know from the other Gospels as well um, that this curtain, which would have been like a really big curtain, really thick, it was realistically a bit more like a wall, was torn from top to bottom. It was though as Jesus bore the wrath of God on the cross, God the Father himself kind of reached down into the world and he tore the curtain apart with both hands. It's as though he says to the world, you know, the way is now open. Don't be blocked out of my presence. The blood sacrifice, to end all blood sacrifice, has been paid. Come meet with me. I've achieved what you could never have done. Now come to me. So then as the, the curtain was torn apart, Jesus says in a loud voice, the prayer of a good Jewish boy at bedtime, 
with one addition. Jesus adds the word Father at the beginning. And he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's a cry of victorious rest from Jesus to his Father. You know, it's done. He died, not having lost, but having won the greatest victory ever. The centurion that was set in place to guard the crucified people saw all of that. Uh, he was a tough, kind of hardened killer of a man, and he was, he'd never seen anyone die in the way that Jesus had. This man, Jesus, dying how he did, brought this Roman centurion to realize that Jesus was a good man, a man of innocence. And the Roman centurion confessed that Jesus was the Son of God. Where we started at the beginning was in Eden. In Eden, man rejected God. God judged man guilty. God pronounced the sentence of death on the man and God drove man out of his garden. At the cross, man judged God guilty. Man pronounced the sentence of death on God and man drove God out of his city. Hard-heartedness towards God is just the norm for humans. At the cross, we can see that at its absolute height. And here's what's truly amazing. That God uses that. That the greatest rejection of himself by humans as a means to bring them hope. When we as humans thought that we destroyed God at the cross, little did we know that instead of us destroying God, God himself had taken on death and destroyed it. When Jesus died on the cross, forgiveness was released to us. As the curtain was torn in two, God was showing the world that the barrier of sin and rejection that had been there for thousands of years since Eden had finally been torn down. Not for a short time, but for all eternity. You know, forever and then kind of forever after that. The rejection of God in Eden by Adam, Adam and by every human ever since, that's you and me included, is undone at the cross when Jesus steps into our flesh and blood and he dies in our place, taking the eternal punishment of hell on himself so that we don't have to bear that punishment ourselves eternally. When Jesus died on the cross, paradise was opened to us. Adam was driven out of Eden because of his sin. At the cross, Jesus' words to the criminal who turned to him were, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Because of Jesus, we're invited by him to walk that road back into paradise that Adam was driven out of. Jesus' sacrifice at the cross says to you and to me today, You are an eternal being. Even now, you know, you'll be alive forever. And there is one of two places that you will be forever. You'll either be in paradise or, or heaven or the new creation with Jesus forever or you'll be in the eternal place of punishment and torment. The place that Jesus went to on the cross of hell. And there's no kind of other option in the middle. When Jesus died on the cross, death was subdued. Jesus' final words on the cross were, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he shouted them out. It wasn't a kind of sobbing, weak cry of failure, but a cry of triumph. Jesus died. But he didn't die an eternal death, a death leading to hell. And neither does anybody else have to. Now Jesus died in our place. 
On the cross, Jesus' death was victorious. Jesus' death won the great prize. It conquered sin, Satan and hell. And our own life everlasting with God the Father in the new creation is available to us forever because of that. So we're kind of left in the same place that everybody all over the, the entire world is left with a great choice to make. Jesus' work on the cross says that there is a price to be paid for our sin. We've seen, I hope today, that Jesus' work on the cross <coughs> is that Jesus himself is our only hope in the face of that death that we will all face at some point. In Luke's account, we see the Roman soldiers and a Roman centurion. The soldiers mocked Jesus and rejected him. Faced with the same evidence, the Roman centurion believed that Jesus was the Son of God. For those who reject and mock Jesus, they will have no hope in the face of death. They will have to pay for their own penalty of sin that they've committed. But for those who accept Jesus as a Son of God by faith, who repent, who acknowledge that they've rejected God, and they ask him to forgive them, for all the things that they've done wrong and seek to live for him, then Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient. It is enough. It's able to cover their debt. There were two criminals, one on either side of Jesus. So let me try to make this really kind of direct for you as we finish. We're all guilty of rejecting God. Both the criminals were guilty. Both of them were faced with an eternity in front of them. One chose life and paradise with Jesus by faith. The other chose death eternally in hell by not choosing Jesus. Which one will you choose? Let me just recommend that you choose Jesus as your king now and forever. Don't go to hell and lose everything, but choose Jesus. Because if we have Jesus, we have everything that we could possibly need. We will have life to the full now and life in eternity in all its forms.